Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. If you'll remain standing, take your Bibles and open up once again to the book of James, James chapter 2. James chapter 2, as we continue our study uh, through this book, this is either our 12th or 13th studying the book of James. I've kind of lost track. But the book of James this morning, chapter 2, looking this morning at verses 20 through 26. So if you'll follow along as I read our text, beginning now in James chapter 2, verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May God bless this reading of his word and our time together in it this morning. You may be seated. The message of Christianity, like that of every religion, is that men are saved by good works. Now, if we stopped there, we'd be in big trouble, right? But the message of Christianity, like that of every religion, is that men are saved by good works. But the unique message of Christianity alone is that salvation comes by the work of another, the Lord Jesus Christ, not by sinners' works. And that is our faith. It is focused in the good works of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That's the Christian religion. Our only hope, our one and only plea before God is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect, sinless, loving life that we could never live and died the death we deserve, the death Sinners must die unless they have trusted Christ alone as their Lord and Savior. And every single person in heaven, and it will be a great multitude that no man can number, but every single person in heaven will be there because of the good works, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and not because of their own. And what James is saying in this section, verses 14 through 26, And what the whole New Testament affirms is that every Christian saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is saved for 
good works. We are saved not by good works, but for good works. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Paul said in Ephesians 2.10. And to Titus, speaking of Christ, he said, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. The lives of Christians are to be characterized by good works following the example of Jesus who we're told went about doing good. No one is saved without becoming a new creation in Christ. And when we are born again internally, the gospel bears the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of believers, and it gradually but inevitably changes our thinking and our behavior from the inside out. And this work of the Spirit internally will result in us bearing fruit externally in the form of good works. Put another way, the new creation we are inwardly will be manifested outwardly in good works. We can't get around it. Though people try, we cannot get around it. Good works are the inevitable outworking of Christ's life in His people. And so although we are not saved By good works, we most certainly are saved for good works. And that's what James has been teaching us. James is not saying that any person who does good works is saved, but that the person without good works is certainly not. Because if there is no fruit, there is no faith. It's that simple. You will know faith by its works. James also is not saying that a Christian's good works contribute in any way to gaining their salvation, but rather that good works are an evidence of faith, evidence that we are, in fact, the redeemed of the Lord. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is always zealous to do good works, and that is the point that James is making. The true saving faith will result in and manifest itself by works which are the evidence of genuine salvation. And nowhere does James more passionately argue and illustrate this than in verses 14 to 26, which we've been looking at now. This is our second week. And you'll remember from last time in verses 8 through 13, Was it 8 through 13? No, I'm sorry, 14 through 20. I went back too far. But you'll remember from last time in verses 14 to 20 that in this passage, James is conversing with an imaginary person, a person who claims to have faith but has no works, a person who claims that you can separate faith from works. And so, James began in verse 14 with two rhetorical questions for this imaginary opponent. And he said in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And so if someone says he has faith, and remember, that is the key to understanding this. This person says they have faith. This person professes to believe in Christ, but his life is void of any good works. And James says, What good is it? And it's a rhetorical question expecting the answer of, well, it's no good at all. It's not beneficial at all. 
And so he asked the next question at the end of verse 14, can that faith save him? What faith? A faith without works. Can that faith save him? Again, the answer expected, no, it cannot save. Because real genuine faith produces real fruit. If there's no fruit, then clearly there is no genuine faith that saves. And then James illustrated his point by comparing faith without works to words of compassion without any acts of compassion. That was in verses 15 and 16, where James said, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So this professed believer saw these people in need, needing clothing and needing food, but they didn't, this person didn't even lift a finger. He sent the needy believer away, wishing them well. But he did absolutely nothing to meet the need that he was fully able to meet. All he did was to offer a pious platitude. Oh, you know, hey, just trust the Lord. Be warmed and be filled. And James says, what good is that? What good is that kind of faith? Answer again expected, it's not good at all. It's totally useless. It, it proves that this person's faith is completely empty. And so James said in verse 17, so also faith by itself, is it dev- if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by obedience, by action, by works, James says, is dead. In other words, it's completely devoid of the life of God. There is no spiritual activity, no real spiritual activity, no uh, sign of spiritual life, no functioning beyond just a mere profession. It's marked by empty confession and false compassion. And James then continued his dialogue with the imaginary objector who claims that you can actually separate faith from works. And so this person was saying, well, you know, you have faith, I have works, people are, are just different. You know, some are gifted with faith, some, some are gifted with works. They don't necessarily go together. It's, it's possible to have one without the other, you know. That's just the way things are. And James will have absolutely none of it. He won't hear it. And that's why he said in the rest of verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, the truth is you cannot show me your faith without works. Faith is invisible. Faith is only made visible by works. And without any practical evidence or outworking of our faith, And the claim is, is utterly empty because true faith always gives practical evidence. Good works make faith visible. A person's claim to have faith is vindicated or proven by a life of holiness and good works. And, so if, and even, even to the point of if someone claims to believe in God, you know, they, they have orthodox theology. That's no guarantee that their faith is genuine because a correct belief system without accompanying works proves absolutely nothing. 
And James used the faith of demons to illustrate that point. Verse 19, he said, you believe that God is one, you do well. And he wasn't belittling the fact that someone would believe that God is one. I mean, he's, he's saying, well, that's good, you do well. But then he said, even the demons believe and shudder. I mean, Satan and his demons believe everything orthodox. And not only that, James tells us they shudder. In other words, they're affected by the truth of God. They believe it. They know it's true, and so they, they tremble at it. It stirs their emotions very deeply because they fear what it says. But their faith is not a saving experience. I mean, James' point is that mere intellectual knowledge of the truth of God in Christ, even one that may touch you in your emotions, is not enough to save. There is an eternal difference between an intellectual assent to those truths and an actual embracing of those truths with your entire life. I mean, faith involves willful obedience. Being a Christian involves submitting your whole life to Christ. It means trusting Christ alone for salvation. And then it means actually living for Christ. And you receive new life in Christ. Then you reveal that new life in the way in which you live. I mean, genuine faith in our hearts will be evident in our lives in some measure. And so if our lives do not outwardly manifest the faith that we profess with our lips, then guess what? The faith is not there. It's dead. It is not existent. It cannot save. And it's no better, James says, than the faith of demons. And then in verse 20, James reiterated the point he had just made. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, he's saying, do you want to be shown, you empty, shallow person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's saying, do you really need more evidence of the fact that faith without works is dead? And now in the verses we're going to look at this morning, James is going to contrast what he has just described as dead faith with living faith. You know, non-saving faith with saving faith. Unproductive faith with productive faith. And in doing so, he is going to use two examples from the Old Testament. Two people from the extreme opposite ends of the social and spiritual spectrum. The first is Abraham, patriarch and father of the Hebrew people, and the second is Rahab, a Gentile Canaanite prostitute. And both extremes demonstrate the reality that a living faith is an active faith. Both were heroes of the faith, and they had a faith that was demonstrated by their courage and by their actions. And James presents each example uh, in the form of a rhetorical question which anticipates his readers' agreement. So let's look now at the faith of Abraham. Look back at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now let's go back and take these verses apart. James begins by saying, was not Abraham our father? And James describes Abraham here as our father. And of course, certainly, physically speaking, Abraham is the father of ethnic Israel. In fact, in Romans 4.1, Paul speaks of Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh. But remember, James is writing to churches which consisted mainly of ethnically Jewish Christians. And so Abraham was their father both spiritually and physically. But Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe. In fact, in Romans 4.11, Paul says, Abraham is the father of all who believe. In Galatians 3.7, Paul said, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And so in a spiritual sense, Abraham is the father of the faithful, of all who believe, Jew or Gentile. He is the model and, and the example of believing God. He is the first ancient illustration of saving faith. And so James identifies Abraham as our father, the father not only of the Jews, but the father of all who believe. Now look back at the verse. James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? And we'll stop there. The question is rhetorical, indicating that the answer to this question is yes. So James is saying, was not Abraham justified by works? Answer, yes. And every student of the Bible is going, whoa, wait a minute. That's not possible. We are justified by faith alone, not by works, and, and that is correct. And so is Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, God made a covenant with Abraham, and he attached promises to that covenant regarding Abraham's future. And those promises had their focus in a son which Abraham did not have. But Genesis 15.6 says of Abraham, he believed the Lord, he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him, God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. This verse, or that verse in Genesis 15.6 is the best known, most authoritative verse in the Old Testament on salvation through faith alone. God credited righteousness to Abraham solely on the basis of his faith. Abraham believed the Lord. In other words, he rested absolutely everything on God's word. And as a result, he was declared righteous apart from works. And this was 14 years before God instituted circumcision and hundreds of years before the law. And there in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham was justified by believing. He was justified by faith. And the Apostle Paul quotes this verse twice in arguing that all who are justified must be justified by faith alone. I mean, in Romans 4, 1 to 8, Paul says Abraham was not justified, or Abraham was not justified by works before God. He was justified by faith. And then Starting in verse 9 of chapter 4, all the way down through verse 17, he makes the point that Abraham was justified by grace. 
And then in verse 19 and following, he says that Abraham didn't weaken in faith. He didn't waver concerning the promise of God, but was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In other words, Paul says Abraham was justified by divine power, not human effort. It was God's power. It was God's work on his behalf. Abraham was saved by divine power, not human effort. Galatians 3.6, he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then Galatians 3.11, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So we have Genesis 15 and then the teaching of Paul in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 that Abraham was justified by faith, by grace. You know, grace is God's unmerited favor in graciously giving a man salvation because he believes. But of course, even the faith to believe is a gift of God according to Ephesians 2. And so God, through the Apostle Paul, very clearly says we are justified by faith. We are saved by faith alone and not by works, but by faith. And now here in our text comes James, and he comes along, and it looks like he's saying the very opposite. On the surface, he appears to be saying Abraham was justified by works. So how do we reconcile this? How do we understand this? How do we explain the fact that James very clearly says Abraham was justified by works? Well, it's very easily cleared up. It's very easily cleared up when we understand that Paul and James are using the word justified in two different ways. You see, this word justified has two general meanings. Number one, it means to acquit, to declare innocent, and to treat as righteous. Number two, it means to demonstrate, to vindicate, to show, to prove as righteous. The first meaning is the sense in which Paul almost always uses the term. Paul declares in in Romans 3 that we are justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We are justified by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3.28, then Romans 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the meaning in Romans 4 when Paul says Abraham was justified by faith. It means he was acquitted, he was declared and, and treated as righteous. Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. So God credited righteousness to Abraham's account. And you see, when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, God declares you and I innocent. And that his perfect righteousness is imputed to us. That is, it's deposited to us. We don't, we don't have it. We don't earn it. We receive it as a gift from God. That's the wonder of salvation by grace through faith. And that's the meaning, that's the sense of the word when Paul uses it. But the second meaning of the word justification, which speaks of vindication or proof of righteousness, is the sense in which James uses the word. And it's used in that sense a number of times in the New Testament in relation to God as well as men. I mean, Paul says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
He writes to Timothy that Jesus Christ was revealed in the flesh. He was vindicated. It's the same word we have here as justified. So he was vindicated or he was justified in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed on among nations, believed on in the world, etc., etc. Jesus commented in, in Luke 7.35 that wisdom is justified or vindicated or proved by all her children. This is the sense in which James uses the word when he says in our text, was not Abraham our father justified by works? In other words, it was not Abraham's, he's, he's saying, uh, was not Abraham's faith vindicated or demonstrated or proven to be genuine by his works? Do you see that? Are you with me? So there's no contradiction between Paul and James regarding faith. And as we learned last time, Paul's teaching about faith focuses on the time before conversion. James' focus is after conversion. James and Paul are addressing different problems in the churches they were writing to. Paul was fighting against the false idea that we can earn our salvation by our works. While James, on the other hand, is fighting against, uh, you know, cheap grace or easy believism that reduces salvation to merely an intellectual belief, you know, just a mere profession without any change in conduct or without any works as necessary evidence of our salvation. Paul is saying salvation is only by grace. James is saying that salvation by grace will result in good works. And so James was not contradicting the doctrine of salvation by faith. He wasn't even dealing with the means of salvation at all, but rather with its outcome. James is dealing with the evidence that salvation has genuinely occurred. So there's there's no debate. There's no contradiction. There's no problem here. James is not saying that Abraham was counted righteous before God because of his own good works. We know this. Because in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, James has already stressed that salvation is a gracious gift. In chapter, in, in verse 23, here in chapter 2, James quotes Genesis 15, 6, which declares that God credited righteousness to Abraham solely on the basis of faith. And then number three, the particular work that James uh, had in mind when he said Abraham was justified by works is an event that took place many years, in fact, 30 years after Abraham first experienced faith and was declared righteous before God. And so with all of that in mind, look back at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified? That is, was not Abraham's justification, his salvation, his faith vindicated and, and proven to be genuine by works? And then here's this specific event that James has in mind when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. And so he's saying, was not Abraham our father, was not his salvation, his faith vindicated and proven to be genuine by works flowing from his faith when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And there are many incidents in the life of Abraham that showed him to be a man of faith. But we also know that he wasn't a man of perfect faith. But that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, many incidents in the life of Abraham showed him to be a man of faith, but James concentrates on one. 
The one recorded in Genesis chapter 2, when obedience to God's command, Abraham placed his son Isaac on the altar and was ready to offer him up as a sacrifice. I mean, we all know the story. God had promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation. But, but for years and years, he had no son. And finally, God gave Isaac to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, and Isaac was the son from whom that great nation would come. But then, suddenly and inexplicably, God tested Abraham's faith by ordering him to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, we know, we know on this side of things that God fully intended to stop Abraham and to provide a ram as a substitute. But Abraham, he didn't know that. Just think of it. Isaac was Abraham's only son, the son of his old age, the son of promise, and the one through whom God intended to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. And yet now God instructs Abraham to offer him as a sacrifice to God? And though he didn't know how God could keep his promises through Abraham, if he was, or through Isaac if he was sacrificed, Abraham demonstrated for all time the reality of his faith, that it was genuine, that it was living rather than dead. Because in spite of the incomprehensible command that Abraham absolutely knew contradicted God's very nature and God's prohibition of human sacrifice, in spite of that, Abraham trusted God implicitly. He trusted God completely. Because he believed in the righteous character of God. He believed that God would never violate either his divine covenant or his holy standards. And so Abraham obeyed without question or without argument. Read the passage. There's no argument on Abraham's behalf. In fact, let's read it. Turn there. Genesis 22. Genesis 22, start reading there in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And there's no argument no discussion, only immediate obedience. And so we read in verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. Then look what he says, and come again to you. You see, Abraham knew uh, that regardless of what happened on Mount Moriah, both he and Isaac were going to return alive. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. They said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his own son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Well, how in the world was Abraham able to do that? How? Faith. Faith in God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us about it. Turn now to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. Now Abraham is mentioned before verse 17, but let's look at verses 17 through 19. Let me just read those. And you know, Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith. These are the great heroes of the faith. This is what the writer says about Abraham. Chapter 11, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham had an unswerving faith and trust in the absolute righteousness and goodness and power of God. And so although no such thing had ever happened before, Abraham knew that if necessary, God could raise Isaac even from the dead. And because of this, James says Abraham was justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar. You see, Abraham's great faith was demonstrated for all to see. I mean, it was proven to be genuine by his works. His works in offering Isaac gave immortal testimony to the reality of the faith and righteousness which had been infused to his life some 30 years earlier when he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the faith Abraham already possessed was the energizing force behind his works. And that is why James says now in verse 22, notice, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. I actually like the New American Standard a little better. It says, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. 
Abraham's faith was working with his works. In other words, it was his faith that moved him to action. His works were the energetic evidence of his faith because genuine faith works. And the tense of the phrase, active along with or or working with, indicates to us that Abraham's faith was not an isolated event in the offering of Isaac, but rather that faith and works were continual characteristics of Abraham's life before and after that event. Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham started out in faith, that he sojourned in faith, and then as we just read, he sacrificed in faith. Once he had come to to trust in God, one man said, Abraham's subsequent works produced a beautiful, ongoing synergism of faith and works. And that's why at the end of verse 22, James says his faith, Abraham's faith was completed or uh, it was perfected as a result of the work. And the word completed or perfected refers to bringing something to its end, to its goal, or to its fullness. You know, it means fully developed. That's this idea of completed or uh, perfected or made perfect. Now, that certainly does not mean that Abraham's faith uh, previously was weak or inadequate and that he added something to his faith by his works, that's not what it means at all. It simply means that Abraham's faith was brought to its fullest. It was brought to its intended goal and to its purpose. As Jesus pointed out on several occasions, the purpose of a tree is to grow and to bear what? Fruit. Fruit representing its natural produce, whether it's figs or oranges or apples or nuts or whatever. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, Jesus said, you will recognize them by their And so bearing fruit is not a function added to a fruit tree, but rather it's an essential, uh, an essential basic part of its very design and purpose. Even before it's planted, a seed contains the genetic structure for producing its own kind of fruit. And in the very same way, when a person is born again through saving faith and is given a new nature by God, Within that new nature, he is given the the genetic structure, the the spiritual DNA, if you will, for producing moral and spiritual good works. It's in our spiritual DNA, and if it's there, it's going to happen. It has to. And this is the sense in which faith is completed or perfected. It produces the godly fruit for which it was designed. I mean, just as a fruit tree has not fulfilled its goal or its intended purpose until it bears fruit, so also faith has not reached its goal or its intended purpose until it demonstrates itself in a righteous life, which is demonstrated by good works. Again, works demonstrate the genuine nature of the faith that produced them. 
And so wherever there is genuine faith, it must and it will blossom into good works. Some will have more, some will have less. We're not all at the same place in our sanctification or uh, the same place in our maturity. But if there is genuine faith, uh, it will bear fruit. It has to. And so this is the sense in which Abraham was justified by works. His unwavering faith and trust in God and his unreserved willingness to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God was the works by which his faith was demonstrated and and proven to be genuine. And all of this served to fulfill Genesis 15.6, which James says now in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The word fulfilled doesn't refer to fulfillment of prophecy. Rather, the word fulfilled means it's speaking of the fulfillment of the principle that justification by faith results in good works. I mean, James is, uh, his point is simply that where there is real faith, there will be an inevitable outworking of it in the life. Again, genuine faith results in works. And and you're going to get tired of hearing that before we complete the message, but it's true. And we need to hear it again and again. Because the church today, and and it grieves pastors. The church today is full of people who profess a lot of things, but what their lips profess is nowhere evident in their lives. And that means their faith is dead, it's non-existent, it's just an illusion, and they're on their way to an eternal hell. That's serious. It doesn't get any more serious. Genuine faith results in works. The genuineness of Abraham's experience of faith in Genesis 15.6 was demonstrated by his works in the example of the offering of his only son, Isaac. And because his faith was genuine, James tells us there in the end of verse 23, and he, Abraham, was called a friend of God. Because of his faith and his growing faith and his works, he's called a friend of God. And the expression friend of God doesn't mean that Abraham initiated the friendship and made God his friend. That's not what it means. Because it was only by God's mercy and grace that Abraham became God's friend. Through his initial trust in God, Abraham was made right before God the Father and had the great privilege of having God accept him as his friend, as the recipient of his love, mercy, grace, and intimacy. You see, the natural outflow of knowing God as Father is also to enjoy God as friend. Abraham walked with God as friend. You know, he experienced an ever-deepening fellowship with the Lord. Abraham was God's friend, but, but this glorious fact isn't limited to Abraham. Because the infinite creator of the universe also calls all those who belong to him his friend. He calls us his friends. I mean, it's one thing for us to say that God is our friend, but it's another thing altogether for God to call us his friends. Right? 
But this is a glorious reality for all those who are justified by faith and who grow in good works. I mean, Jesus said to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Isn't that wonderful? You see, a God-given faith in Christ brings the Christian into a living relationship with him, a relationship in which there, there is communion and, and communication that is absolutely and, and utterly unknown to the unbeliever. And as God's friend, not, not only can we share our innermost thoughts and, and secrets with him, but he's willing to share some of his with us. And what I mean by that is when we as Christians, when we, we come to the word of God, God speaks to us through his word. And he's doing so as father, but also as a friend. Look back at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, or a person is not justified by faith that is alone, a faith that is without works. Whereas one translation says, you see that a man is shown to be upright by his good works and not merely by his faith. And that really gives the thrust of what James is saying here. James would absolutely say that we are justified by faith alone, but by a faith which is never alone. He would say that if your faith is alone, that if your faith is without works, you're in the grip of an eternal illusion. And James would urge you with all that is within him to experience real faith, a faith that produces works. And that doesn't mean that someone uh, whose life is void of, of good works who just go out and start performing good works. Good works don't save. The first order of business is faith in Christ alone for salvation. And then the good works will naturally, they will inevitably flow out of a life that has been transformed. I mean, James' point is that genuine faith works. When Christ gives us spiritual birth, he gives us spiritual life, a life uh, that will be radically different. And it's a life that will bear fruit. But as I've already mentioned, there's an easy believism that is just rampant in the church today. Where all kinds of people claim to believe. They, they claim all kinds of things. They claim they're right before God the Father, but their lives are, are void of any evidence of it. And they fit the description given in Titus. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their words. And they have absolutely no interest in walking with God as friends. And James says such people don't even have faith. Their faith is dead. Because genuine faith results in radical obedience, radical obedience, which proves itself in daily life and works. So when your faith is in God, 
When your faith is in God as Father and you walk with Him as His friend, then you don't need to be afraid to obey Him. You don't need to fear His commands. Because even when He says to do things that make absolutely no sense to us or even to the world around us, and even when He calls us to take steps that risk absolutely everything, we can obey Him. Why? Because we trust God wholeheartedly. Now the second person, we'll try to move through this quickly. Second person James uses to illustrate living faith, a faith that works, is a woman named Rahab. Look at verse 25. And in the same way, literally, and likewise also. So in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So James has gone from Abraham, the founding father of God's covenant people, a man at the top of the socioeconomic ladder and one who demonstrated his trust in God over many years, to Rahab, who was at the opposite end of the spectrum. She was a Gentile, a pagan Canaanite, an immoral woman, a prostitute in the city of Jericho. I mean, she was at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Yet Rahab the prostitute is listed along with Abraham in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And not only that, she was even in the human lineage of our Lord and Savior. She was the great-grandmother of King David. Now, we're not naturally inclined to think that prostitutes are great material for the building of God's kingdom and the expansion of the gospel, are we? But Rahab stands forever as a rebuke to our own self-righteousness. And she is a glorious testimony to the infinite love and grace of God for all He is saving from their sins. I mean, what a great reminder of the fact that in the economy of the kingdom of God, natural advantages such as race, gender, status, or other privileges count for absolutely nothing. Because eternal life is promised to all who believe from the greatest to the least. But as wonderful as that truth is, it doesn't explain why James would bring in Rahab as an example of living faith. I mean, why her? Because James, may have, he may have done so because he was anticipating an objection. And he knew that, that some of his readers would probably respond to the illustration of Abraham something along these lines. James... <laughs> You're telling us to show our faith by our works and using Abraham as an example? It's like, are you kidding me? I mean, how unfair is that? How can we be expected to match up to Abraham when you think of all of God's special dealings with him and, and the extraordinary promises that were made to him? Look, James, we're just ordinary people, and, and Abraham is, is so far above us, we can't even identify with him. Surely you don't expect us to, to be like him. And so what does James do? Well, he goes to the opposite end of the spectrum. He goes right to the very bottom of the social barrel, and he uses the example of a prostitute. And he does so to make the very same point, that true faith evidences itself in good works. And in using Rahab, James shows that God insists on good works as evidence of genuine faith, even from those who come from the lowest levels of society or have the deepest scars of past sin. No exceptions. 
And that demand by God is perfectly reasonable. Because with every demand God makes, He also gives the enabling power to meet it. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. So no Christian uh, can plead their background, their upbringing, their environment, or, or anything else as an excuse for not living a godly life. Enough of the excuses. I mean, after all, Rahab had been a pagan prostitute and a godless, debauched, depraved, extremely perverted Canaanite society. And the background for Rahab is found in Joshua chapters 2 and 6, and you remember the story. Joshua and the people of Israel were about to begin their conquest of the land of Canaan. The city of Jericho was the first target. So Joshua sent spies into the city to get the lay of the land, and, and they went to the house of Rahab, uh, perhaps because they thought that it wouldn't arouse much suspicion for strangers to go to the house of a prostitute. Little did they know it was the providential hand of God. But that perhaps was their reasoning, but they were mistaken. Because the king of Jericho got word that spies had come to the city and were at the house of Rahab. So the king immediately sent men to search for the spies, but Rahab hid them. She sent the king's men in the wrong direction and then enabled the spies to escape. And so is James saying that Rahab secured salvation for herself by doing the good work of helping Israel's spies? Well, of course not. You know, Abraham had been, faith, uh, had been saved by faith long before he was called to sacrifice Isaac. And so the offering of Isaac was not the means by which he secured faith. It was rather the way in which he manifested his faith. And it's exactly the same with Rahab. Because what is clear from the account in, in the book of Joshua is that Rahab was already a believer before the spies ever arrived at her door. And this is what she said to the spies. Turn over to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Start reading in verse 9, 9 through 12. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord, and that's, the, that's God's covenant name, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord, how Yahweh, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sion and King Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, by Yahweh, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. Well, obviously, Rahab did not have a lot of information. All she had, uh, we could say, was, was hearsay and 
and accounts that she had heard about the people of God walking through the Red Sea on dry, ga- dry ground and, and being delivered by God against foreign armies. But the little she had heard, she believed. And she knew and she declared, Yahweh is God in heaven and on the earth. She knew he was sovereign over all things, and she knew that she was accountable to him. And Rahab knew judgment was coming upon her land. And she feared and and revered the sovereign God. I mean, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, or hearing by the word of God. Abraham, or excuse me, Rahab heard God's word. And though surrounded by her depraved culture, she believed. She trusted in God based on the very limited knowledge that she had. And, and although she knew nothing of salvation as Christians understand it, or as even the ancient Israelites understood it, Her heart was right before God, and so like Abraham, she believed God, and it was counted to her as righteousness. And what was the result of her faith? As a result of her faith, she was willing to take this risk, this radical step of obedience, because she believed God. And when you believe God, you're willing to risk everything. Why? Because genuine faith works. I mean, if the king had discovered that these Jewish spies were in Rahab's home, she and her entire family would have been immediately executed. She put her life and everything dear to her literally on the line for the Lord, trusting him without hesitation, qualification, or reservation. She risked it all. She risked it all going against everything in the culture around her. And she risked it all so the people of God might take Jericho for the glory of God. And according to James, Rahab the prostitute was justified. Her faith was demonstrated. It was manifested. It was proven to be genuine by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. James' point is that Rahab demonstrated the true nature of her faith by her works and giving aid to the Lord's people in their mission. She was shown to be righteous just as surely as was Abraham, and the proof was God sparing her life when Jericho fell to the conquering Israelites. But the point is that both Abraham and Rahab did something. They didn't just claim to have faith in God and then sit idly by. Their faith led them to action. I mean, Rahab was prepared to be identified with the people of God. She put her own life in jeopardy in order to save the lives of two fellow believers because of her faith. As one man said, a woman who had ruined her life with lust at its lowest now revealed her faith by love at its highest. The grace of God at work in her life transformed her, and the reality of her spiritual experience was made strikingly clear by her daring act of loyalty to the people of God in their great need. And that is why she is included in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And there the writer of Hebrews says of her, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, Why? Because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. 
in His boundless grace. And God accepted her trust in Him and her service to Him and rescued her family and, and used her for His own div divine purposes, causing her to become a model of faith and, as I mentioned earlier, an ancestor of the Messiah. You see, the genuineness of Abraham's and Rahab's faith was not demonstrated by their profession of faith or by their worship or by ritual or by any other religious activity for that matter. In both cases, it was demonstrated by putting everything that was dear to them on the line for the Lord and trusting everything to Him without qualification or reservation because they were supremely committed to the Lord, whatever the cost. And so long before Jesus' crucifixion, Abraham and Rahab were willing to take up their crosses, as it were, and follow Him. As Jesus said, they hated their life in this world in order to keep it in the world to come. They lived with an eternal perspective. They had a true and living faith which manifested itself in their lives by good works. But faith which does not produce works is comparable to a corpse, which is the analogy James uses to close out this section. Look at verse 26. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In Genesis 2-7, God formed the first human being by breathing life into his body. And that union of spirit and body produced a living human being. And of course, we know in death, the spirit returns to God, but the body decays into dust. A body without the Spirit is nothing but a corpse. It's just a shell. It is dead, lifeless, and decaying, and it needs to be buried as soon as possible. And in the same way, James wants us to understand that faith without works is also dead. Dead. A person who claims to have faith but lacks works, is spiritually as dead as a, and, and lifeless as a corpse. You realize that? A person who claims to have faith, but whose life is really void of evidence of faith, whose life is lacking works, is spiritually as dead and as lifeless as a corpse. And like a dead body, a dead faith, is of no value whatsoever. As we bring this study to a close, I want to ask you, what kind of works vindicate or demonstrate the reality of true saving faith? I mean, going to church, reading the Bible, singing songs, giving money, Going to a Bible study doesn't say any of that, does it? Because there are thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who do those things every week who don't have genuine saving faith. In fact, I'm not even sure we should consider any of those things as good works. 
Because those are merely the demands of discipleship. Those are are merely the things that you expect from anyone who has spiritual life. That's Christianity 101. Those are the, uh, the duties of a servant of Christ. You see, to follow Christ, there are very high standards of discipleship. And though we would obey Christ in, in doing these things, and certainly a Christian would do them, but in obeying Christ in these things, we're not to think that our obedience is meritorious or, or worthy of some kind of special honor. Those things are merely the demands of discipleship, merely what is expected of a believer. And that's why Jesus told his disciples, who may have been balking at the high cost of discipleship, that's why Jesus said to them in Luke 17.10, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And so back to our question. You know, what kind of works vindicate or demonstrate the reality of true saving faith? Again, going to church, reading the Bible, singing songs, giving money, going to a Bible study, doesn't say any of that. No doubt they both worshiped God, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say Abraham or Rahab went and worshiped God and did any of those things. Rather, in both cases, the visible manifestation of their faith was putting their life putting their dreams, their hopes, all that was dear to them, literally on the line for God, trusting him without hesitation. They risked everything. And that is the kind of work that I believe God wants us to understand is demonstrated in true faith. It isn't that you went to church or you read a Bible or or sang a song or gave some money or went to a, a Bible study or served a little bit when it was convenient. It is that you are so supremely committed to the Lord Jesus Christ that you are willing to be inconvenienced any time, night or day. You're willing to go to your own cupboard and closet to supply that brother and sister who are in need instead of sending them off with the pious platitude of, well, just trust the Lord. It means you're willing to make any sacrifice. You're willing to to serve till you drop, give sacrificially till it hurts to meet needs. You're willing to risk it all, to lay it all on the line, sacrifice your hopes and dreams and ambition, even risking your very own life to be true to your faith and obedience to God. That's the issue. You're willing to leave it all on the field, so to speak. Because nothing less than this can be considered taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following Christ. We have to be willing to leave it all on the field, so to speak, living all for Him, totally for Him. Why? Because of our love and adoration for the one who loved us and gave Himself for us. I mean, do we not understand the glory of our salvation? Do we not understand 
that Christ died for us. He purchased us. We belong to Him. Us and all we are, all we have, all we will ever be belong to Him. Lock, stock, and barrel. And we and all of those things are to be at His disposal. He's the Master. He's the Lord. When Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I command? We're to be willing to leave it all on the field because of our love and adoration for the one who loved us and and gave himself for us. We're we're willing to lay it all on the line, to, to give it all away, to expend every ounce of our strength because we have an eternal perspective. We're not living for the here and now. We have our eyes fixed on eternity. We've, we're denying ourselves, taking up our cross. We're following Him. We're living for Him in radical obedience, no matter what the cost. I mean, Jesus put it this way. If you're not willing to take up your cross, which as we know was a symbol of excruciating death, He said, if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You may have a problem with that if you do take it up with him. And so the issue is is not do you go to church or do you read your Bible or do you have a little spiritual religious activity and some people have precious little of it. I mean, a person may profess Christ and give every appearance of living for Christ until it's inconvenient. And then they have to say no to some desire or until they have to say no to some desire or until it costs them some time and, and some of their material resources or, or, or perhaps may cost them their job or whatever. And when people begin to realize what it costs to follow Jesus, though, they say no to that. Just like the multitudes did in John 6. When they found out what it really was to follow Jesus, they all left, it says. They all left. So that Jesus turned to the disciples and said, are you going to leave too? Now when it begins to cost, that's when people will say no And then you see what it is they really love. What it really is they give their time, their love, their affection, their resources to. One commentator said, it is in the vortex of the dire decisions of life where hopes and dreams and destiny and ambition and life itself is on the line that the true faith always reveals itself. The issue, he said, is when it comes down to the crux of why you live and what is valuable, your faith in God is more valuable to you than everything you hold most dear, and you'll put your own life on the line. You'll put it all on the line because you have such implicit and total trust in him. That, he said, is the issue. And this is why Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, because he trusted God. And when we trust God, we will follow God sacrificially. And we will sacrifice everything in obedience to his commands. So loved ones, the point that James is trying to get across to us 
a very poignant way is that our works are the evidence of our justification because faith bears fruit. Faith acts. Abraham believed God and consequently he was willing to sacrifice his son. Rahab believed God and consequently she was willing to risk it all. And these two examples from James 2, Abraham and Rahab showed their faith by what they did. Because faith is shown by its activity. Faith is not something you only talk about. A native native man wandered into a village where a missionary was living and working among the local people, and the missionary recognized uh, that he was not from the area. And so he struck up a conversation with him. And he asked, have you ever heard the gospel? And the man responded, no, I've only seen it. The missionary, thinking the man must have misunderstood what he said, asked him again, have you ever heard the gospel? He said, no, I have only seen it. And then he went on to describe a Christian that he had met. You see, you can hear about faith. But the truthfulness of it has to be seen. And so that begs the question, is the genuineness of your faith demonstrated? Is it manifested and proven to be genuine faith by your good works? Because real faith the kind Abraham and Rahab had always and continually produces good works. Martin Luther, the one who thought so little of James, the book of James, but later came to understand it, said of faith, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them and is already at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. He gropes and looks about after faith and good works and, and knows neither what faith is nor what, God, what, what good works are, though he talks and talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Faith which does not produce works is not really faith at all. Faith without works, James says, is dead. It doesn't save. And so what James wants us to do is to look at our works. So look at your works. What do they tell you about your faith? I mean, do you have a belief without the accompanying behavior? Do you believe but not obey? We're not talking about perfect obedience, and if you've gone here for any length of time, you know that. We're not talking about sinless perfection. We're just talking about desire and direction. 
I mean, do you say you believe? Are, are you orthodox, but you don't long to serve God? You know, you don't love him to the point where uh, whatever it may cost you, you're willing to pay the price because he is the one that is supremely dear to you. Is your faith useless, as the Word of God would uh, call it, or is it a saving faith? And that's the question James wants to ask. You know, the test of, of living faith. And then finally, in closing, I just want to say that, loved ones, it's, it's not enough to merely say you believe. I talk to people all the time, unbelievers, who say, well, of course I believe. Yeah, I believe that. But mere mental assent to the truth of the gospel is not enough. I mean, there are so many people who would admit that they're sinners, who would say that they even believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but some people who say they believe the gospel give absolutely no evidence of it in their lives. Very little change in their conduct. And James wants to remind us that faith that doesn't bear some fruit is dead. I mean, don't misunderstand me. I mean, two things are clear from the Word of God. First of all, salvation is by faith alone, apart from works. But the second thing that the Scriptures are abundantly clear about is that salvation by faith is not alone, because a living faith is never alone. A living faith will bear fruit. So I want to ask you, I mean, just as kindly as I can, and out of a heart of absolute and utter concern. Is your faith a living faith? Or is it a dead faith? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners by grace through faith in his finished work upon the cross. And I pray and I pray that each and every one of you have entrusted your eternal destiny to Christ by putting your faith and trust in him alone for salvation that you might receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life and be brought into an uh, eternal relationship with God as father and as friend. And I also pray that those who observe our lives will not have to wonder whether there is genuine faith there or not. They won't have to question uh, the reality of our profession. I have great concern because it seems that, it seems that there's a lot of profession but not a lot of reality. And loved ones, there is nothing more important. This is the issue 
in all of life. May the Lord work his work of true saving faith, true saving grace in every single heart. Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.